Hello, and welcome to the Observer Station, a podcast for North Pacific Grand Fisheries Observers, but because that's a really long title, I'm just going to refer to us as observers. Welcome, I'm Walter. And I'm Wheeler. And we're, we're the, the Observer, Observer Station. Station. <laughs> All right, Lauren, let's, uh, let's just go into it. Let's, uh, who, who are you, Lauren? Who am I? Who, who, who are you? All right. Well, um, yeah, I'm Lauren, and uh, I've been observing for like three years in Alaska. Um, I've done partial coverage and full coverage. Um, super fun, and we'll get into what those are later in the episode. What kind of fish have you monitored? Like, I, I don't know much about the partial coverage fleet, and I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, you know what kind of boats you've been on. Um, well, f- well, fuck it. Let's just get right into it. So partial coverage, for those of you who don't know, um, are boats that are partially covered, or they're like a lottery system. They log their trips and they get randomly selected. Uh, so most of those boats are under 120 feet. Um, I've done mostly Pollock trawl out of Kodiak. I've done some Pacific Cod trawl out of Kodiak. I've done long liners out of Dutch Harbor and Kodiak. Um, longliners have consisted of halibut and black cod, or sablefish for other people. Um, yeah, partial coverage is basically you take one or two trips with boats, and then you get the hell off and get ready for your next boat. That's pretty neat. What full coverage boats have you been on? Is it just Pollock vessels, or...? Um, so I have actually not done coverage Pollock, um, funny enough. Uh, my first full coverage vessel was a longliner out of Dutch, um, and we did Pacific Cod. And then I've also done Rockfish with full coverage, which is a whole bunch of spiky fun. What's, what's the best meal you've eaten on a boat? What do you think the best meal you've eaten on a boat is? Oh, Lord. There was this one boat, partial coverage boat. They did seared steak, roasted baby potatoes, and these, like, this grilled veggie medley and it took me about five minutes after eating a plate to vomit it all over the galley table <laughs> i love seasickness uh, okay i was gonna say do you get seasick so that answers that question yeah um i used to get pretty seasick fun. yeah i used to get pretty seasick but now as long as i'm like super hydrated like i don't i don't get seasick what about you? Have you uh do you yak? I'm pretty sure I know that you yak on boats. Oh yeah, I definitely uh I definitely yak. I mean it it comes and goes. Uh obviously over my experience, you know, five years of observing, I've been on a variety of different weathers and I can say that I don't vomit on most of my boats, but when I do, I still end up going on deck and sampling. I don't think I've ever called a sampling day due to seasickness or Anything like that. Maybe some weather days when it gets really gnarly and there's too much, you know, green water on the deck and stuff. But I definitely do get seasick. Being hungover, never a good idea, especially when you're getting on a boat. <laughs> um, that definitely adds into the seasickness. But I've never been on any super small boats. I've been on one 58-footer, and that one rode really nice. And actually, I didn't get seasick on it. It's typically, you know, the 120-foot boats that ride a little weird in the waves and they feel like they can go in, out in pretty much any water that ends up getting seasick and especially when you're in derby fishery like cod uh they really want to catch that fish as fast as they can so weather is not too much of an issue for them yeah because you normally well not normally you've basically only done full coverage right yeah i've only done full coverage uh, and 
Um, I know you've done rockfish, but what else have you done in the full coverage sector? Uh, I've done hake, which is technically full coverage, but that's not really Alaska. That's uh, its own program, A-Shop. Pollock, uh, Peacod, Trawl, Peacod Trawl, and uh, yeah, Rockfish, that's pretty much been it. I've been a Pollock princess for most of my observing career, um, which, Ooh, you know... You wear your crown proud. Yeah, it it's actually taxes on me too much now, and I do not request any Pollock vessels. I actually haven't requested Pollock vessels for quite a few years, but I still get put on them because they used to need people now with the em system that's not too much of an issue um yeah well and you're kind of a psycho because you always want to go during a season which is yeah crazy. we just got that email today uh about going out for a season and i said either one of those plants doing and uh the efp or a mothership of some sort i want to get my cp certification because hake doesn't count towards that so I need to get Which my is 100 nuts hauls. That you're not certified yet. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty much me. Now, you and I, uh, we'll state this now, we're both certified West Coast observers as well. Uh, haven't been on a yes. boat yet, but hopefully sometime soon. Yeah, yeehaw. Getting started on that journey. Yeah. I've done the Hake program out of Seattle at A Shop or at Sea observing or hake observing program a shop that's the correct acronym and that was a pretty good intro for both of us i feel like so now they know that i am a pollock princess and you've kind of scattered yourself throughout alaska <laughs> um, yeah i'm kind of a crazy uh, gypsy i've just kind of flown everywhere yeah so we know that there's more than just the alaska program obviously because we're both west yes. coast certified which has Kind of a partial coverage and a full coverage. It's got catch shares and non-catch shares. Catch shares essentially the equivalent of full coverage for boats that are selected to be in the catch share. Um, and then non-catch shares that random draw. They only do a pretty low percentage of some of the vessels. It's like pink, pink shrimp. And they said the other ones. We just went through this training, but I can't recall what they are. Oh, dude, I've... My brain's been so scattered, I can't even recall what they are either. I'll have to bust out my manual. I'm a great observer. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. That's it. You go to your manual. So we've got the East Coast program, which is technically like two different. We've got the Greater Atlantic I know they do. and then the Southeast program. That's like a whole nother monster I hear from people who've gone yeah. over and done that program. Do you know they do a lot of scallops for the most part and rockfish? Um, yeah. And then I know they have, like, well, up up in the northeast, I know they have, like, lobster and stuff, but I'm not too familiar with East Coast program. I know they do, like, marine mammal observing and stuff in the Gulf, and I know there is some marine mammal observing in Alaska, but we're going to talk more specifically on the fisheries observers. Um, there's also the Hawaii program, which I hear some horror stories about, you know, bed bugs and... Pooping, uh, yeah. pooping in buckets and then eating out of the same bucket later. Uh, it's just some, some terrible programs. Well, that's actually super fun in the partial coming. coverage up in Alaska. There is there is a couple of bucket boats up there. Yeah. The West Coast, we've got fleet. a couple as well. Ah. Which, you know, porta potties don't seem to cost too much, but I guess I'm not a fisherman, so I don't know what it's like. I mean, I know our boss told me that she would buy me a camping toilet, so, uh, 
you know, I might I might take her up on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, so I, let's I'm go... assuming a lot of people will know that let listen to this. I'm assuming a lot of people will know what observers are because they probably are observers. But just for the sake of those curious people who are thinking about being an observer or um, you know are about to go through training and kind of like don't exactly know what an observer is. Um, let's kind of talk about, like, what are we? Like, what do we do? Yeah, Lawrence, so what I was there when you were brand new out of training, you just got into the plant, you were waiting to get on your boat, and, um, Joel and I had a pretty good idea as to what you were about to go through, but what was going through your head? Like, you, you came through training, it trained you to do what, and what were you prepared to do out on that vessel? Um, yeah, so they were like, okay, yeah, you're gonna go on this boat, and you're gonna, like, count these fish. And I went, alright. Um, I'm not gonna lie, training did not prepare me at all for what I was about to do. Um, although, the one thing that was, like, pretty clear was, you know, just do it, just dive in and, and learn. And after that first haul, it kind of gave me a better handle on what they were actually talking about during training. But I will say it didn't exactly prepare me, especially like, you know, coming from somebody who grew up on a lake, didn't have a lot of boat experience, didn't have a lot of, um, you know, fishing. Well, I had fishing like reel and rod stuff, but like not actually like, you know, commercial fishing experience. It was kind of jarring to go from Seattle to Anchorage and then thrown into um, this random port in the middle of Gulf of Alaska. Um, and just kind of being at a factory and, like, seeing how dingy and dirty everything was and getting on this boat with these, like, dudes I don't know and, like, how sticky everything was. It was kind of a, it was a shock, um, I will say. A cool shock, because I got to see some interesting fish right off the bat and meet some weird characters. But, uh, it was kind of a shock, and I don't really feel like training super prepared me that well for it. How long were you on that first boat? Um... Oof, man. I think I was on there for six days. Yeah, because it was, it had like a day and a half steam out, two days of fishing, and then a two-day steam to Kodiak from King Cove. So uh, just pulling up the Observer program, what they do, or what uh, NIMS is submitted to the public here, it says observers may spend days, weeks, or even months aboard commercial fishing vessels and receiving vessels. Work is intense, conditions may be uncomfortable, preparing observers for safe deployment requires active partnership among NOAA fisheries, including uh, NOAA's Office of Law Enforcement, or OLE as most people call it, and Office of General Counsel, which I've never actually heard of, but I assume that's if you make, or you have a severe issue that goes past just um, reporting that that's who actually takes up the case. Um, observers, observer providers, the Coast Guard, and the fishing industry. So what what's the longest trip you've ever been out on? Uh, 27 days. That is a long time. How did you keep yourself entertained? Or is that, I assume that was a long liner. Um, yeah, it was a long liner. Um, but yeah, basically... I had, obviously, my, um, oh my god, why am I blanking on this word? My observer, uh, air drive, there we go. 
the bunch of like shows and movies on it. I had waterproof deck of cards, a shitload of coloring books. Um and I think that's it. I just colored, um watched some movies. And then it was a long liner, so I was constantly busy, so that kinda helped a lot. But those days went by relatively fast. That's pretty good. So uh, next year it says uh, observers, the role of observers is to monitor commercial fisheries and collect data to support science, conservation, and management. Support compliance with fishing and safety regulations. So what what kind of data have you collected on these boats? Like that we've got to be careful with the NDA and that just so very general terms. What do you collect on, on your boats out there? Um. Well, very general terms. You will collect Sex, length uh, from certain species, maturity scans from certain species, lists from certain species. Um, some you have to kind of do your own calculations on density. You gotta measure the bags. Um, you gotta do a lot of weights. You gotta do a lot of sorting of species. So you gotta kind of do like a species composition type of thing. Um, uh, another set of data that we have to pay attention to is, like, are there marine mammals present? Are there birds present? Did anything come up in the net, like a mammal or a bird? Um, it's kind of the general general information that we collect. You said you're from a, a lake area. I know you're from the Midwest or whatever they define that as over there. Uh, how was it doing your first species comp sample? Like, looking at all these new fish. I knew you had gone to a lab and they have frozen specimens sometimes and they have a lot of formaldehyde of specimens which all come out the same brown color so how was your first species comp sample um first species comp sample was actually relatively easy because it was quite literally all pollock um my first boat was a pollock boat i think i might ha- i might have had like a jellyfish in there um it really wasn't didn't have too much different species so that wasn't very overwhelming I think the first overwhelming boat that I had with species comp was my very first flatfish boat. Oh, yeah, I forgot to say that. I did flatfish. Um, that was kind of ridiculous because it's very short toes. So you have not a lot of time to get everything done. And it's like constant. So it's like toe after toe after toe after toe. And you have a load of different species. So that was very overwhelming um, to the point where... You know, like, I just had to dial back my sampling because there was no way that I could ID everything and take the size samples they wanted. That's pretty interesting. So as far as safety goes, you know, that safety is incredibly important to our providers and to the NIMPS office, or they state this consistently, you know, safety is our number one priority up there. Um, but safety is always on the observers themselves. Has there been, like, any moments where you've gotten onto a boat and decided, you know, maybe the crew really doesn't have too good of an idea um, as to what will go on in an emergency, so I better be more prepared to protect myself and help others if I can. Oh, constantly. Um, especially in the partial coverage fleet. Those guys don't prepare themselves at all for anything. There's been a couple of boats here and there in the partial coverage, but for the most part, <laughs> the partial covered boats that I've been on they have no idea how to do any of the drills. Like, I would be very scared if anything happened on those boats, to be honest. 
Uh, I can speak for the full coverage vessels I've been on, but typically a lot of the crew members aren't in the healthiest conditions to admit self-rescue, much less rescue somebody else. Is that like the same case in the partial coverage fleet? Yeah, and they just, they don't actually, for the most part, partial coverage fleet doesn't actually like care. They don't actually think that things are going to happen. But I mean, when you're on deck and like, there's been a couple of close calls in the partial coverage fleet where I've had lines snap next to people's heads and I'm like, oh my God, I'm the only person that has medical training on this boat. <laughs> um, nothing has happened in front of me, thank God, because it's always like, missed it um you know by a couple inches so no one's actually gotten hurt in front of me but uh yeah, holy crap okay no i lied one time somebody had a hook in their back and i had to take that out that was intense that's gross <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was a better term that was a long liner a partial coverage long liner and i had to take a hook out of this dude's back because no one else knew how to do it i uh i've seen one injury on a boat where a cable snapped and a crew member it was struck by it, but luckily he was wearing his life vest, which definitely helped absorb a lot of the impact. But that's pretty much the only major safety thing that I've ever seen on a vessel. I mean, at plants, these things happen quite frequently. There are a lot of people moving around very quickly and a lot of equipment and a lot of moving parts of them. So... I mean, safety is safety is important. Here on the spreadsheet, it says there's 850 observers total. I assume that's across the entire United States, which is a pretty healthy number of us. And keeping everybody as safe as possible requires a lot of training. I know this next year we're being required to go up and do water safety in person, which is good because I haven't done it in quite a few years. And now that COVID's kind of becoming more under control um, as far as safety and quarantines and things like that. Um, it's going to be really interesting seeing how it's the safety aspect of this job continues on because a lot of the trainings that have happened recently, a lot of the newer observers didn't do much in person, not like you or I, where we were there in Seattle for the full three weeks and they were constantly drilling with our emergency suits and things like that. I will say I have noticed a Big difference in quality of observers since that happened, like with the new observers that I met um, out in the field. I mean, they're very smart individuals. They don't have the urgency of safety that, that was drilled into us, which kind of scares me a little bit for them because I'm just like, oh man, <laughs> please take this stuff seriously. There's, a, there's definitely a lot that needs to be on your mind when you're up and working on these vessels, whether it's a big vessel, whether it's a small vessel, you need to keep safety safety in mind it's always up to you to keep yourself safe no one else will have as good an eye on you as you will at pretty much at all times now have you have ever had any close calls out there uh <laughs> a couple close calls i've almost fallen off a couple vessels and i when that cable struck and struck the crew member the other half of the cable landed maybe a foot behind me so it was uh relatively unsettling that vessel is not my favorite one to ever ever been on and the safety definitely wasn't something that was taken seriously on that vessel. Um, I've been on some vessels where they, whenever you have drills, they have debriefings afterwards. Everyone talks about how they can improve safety for next drills and things like that. And there's, there's a lot of very safe vessels out there. It's the unsafe ones that really seem to be highlighted. Um, 
when observers get on them and the observer themselves is safety conscious and trying to protect themselves as well as the crew members. Yeah. Um, speaking of safety, uh, do you think that we're kind of sounding a lot like our trainers right now? Very much so. But <laughs> that being said, safety is the number one priority. Yes. Always keep yourself safe. Nothing is worth it. Keep yourself alive out there. So let's step off safety for a bit. We could have a whole episode, and I'm sure we will have a whole episode on safety. Um, what's your background? I mean, we, you wanted to talk like what observers are and what we do, but what, what's your background? I've met observers that some of them focus on like large mammals, some of them on forestry and things like that. But what's your background? Um, yeah, actually, I think this is a pretty interesting topic because um, there's actually some observers that I worked with that were actually nurses before they came to uh, do observing, which I think is pretty wild. Um, I'm pretty boring. Um, <laughs> I actually had no interest in doing marine at all. I was very much focused in freshwater uh, macroinvertebrates. And all of my research in my undergrad was, like, uh, secluded um, upper mountain streams, like, in Costa Rica, on macroinvertebrates and their life cycles. So that's kind of my background. I just kind of... I just stumbled into this. I have no idea how the hell I ended up in the middle of the Bering Sea, but here I am. How do you feel like, uh, did you feel like your degree prepared you for what training was going to put you through and what the job was actually going to put you through? Or did you feel like most of your training or most of your learning experience was hands-on, a little bit at the training, and then most of it at the job? Um, honestly, I feel like... Training in Seattle was a good thing to go through, um, but my background really didn't prepare me. The only thing it prepared me for was seclusion, like the um, isolated areas, because when I did a research in Costa Rica, we were in a very isolated mountaintop. Um, so that's the only thing that really prepared me for the isolation um, and, like, you know, lack of supplies around and, and whatnot. Um, but as far as, like, training like the it's good to hear about that in training but the actual application didn't actually sink in until i was on my first boat it's really hard to visualize well at least for me i don't know about you but at least for me it was really hard to actually visualize like what i was going to do until i was actually on the boat knee deep in fish um what about you like how did training really prepare you what's your background well my background um Grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I got a marine biology degree, focused really on fishes with that as much as I could. Took a lot of fish and wildlife, um, uh, ichthyology, fish structures and anatomy, things like that. And so I, I came into the job with a really healthy background on marine fishes. I re really focused on them. I really enjoy them. That's why I really enjoy the work that we do up here. We get to work with fish hands on. So when we were going through and identifying fish in the lab, I was just, like, having the time of my life. Most of the fish I'd already known. A lot of the skates and birds are a little difficult for me or were a little difficult for me um, just because I didn't have a lot of experience with them. It's not something you see a lot when you do ichthyology or talk about those. You don't talk about those cartilaginous fishes. Um, but I saw a lot of a lot of my fellow trainees... Uh, have quite 
the difficult time identifying some of the rockfish and flatfish, but we work together and you put in the time, you go in, you, you study your extra fish and you go and talk to your trainers and ask experienced observers about tips and tricks for identifying fish. And I think it's something that really anybody can do with enough uh, motivation to do it. The job itself, my first boat was a Pollock vessel and I flew up, didn't have any of my personal clothes. I had to go to the store, buy, you know, some sweatshirts, some pants, some underwear and things like that. And, uh, rain gear and all that and <laughs> got on my boat. Luckily it was a relatively easy and clean tow. I think it was like 50% jellyfish, 50% Pollock. And then I think I got two chum in my first sample and that was just with me it was just you know three species id forms i don't know if we actually had to do one for jellyfish or that but i did one anyways um so i feel like i was pretty well prepared for it <laughs> i know one of my classmates he went and got on a rockfish boat for his first vessel and by the time we saw him on a pollock vessel he was hating life he did not enjoy it um some people don't really like rockfish. I personally love rockfish. I love the diversity, and I love working with those those unique toes. And every every toe is different. You got to sample everything pretty much differently. It's it's a lot more. Uh, you have to use your brain a lot more than you do with Pollock. I'll, I'll be honest there. Pollock is just mindless sampling. It's usually almost all Pollock. Maybe you'll get some herring or some jellyfish, but it's almost always Pollock. Oh, I fucking love rockfish and flatfish. Flatfish is the same thing. You get like, oh, excuse you, Renly. Sorry, my dog is yawning in the background. Um, but yeah, I love like flatfish and rockfish, and I just, I just love how every toe is different, and you actually have to like figure out how you're gonna sample and have your ID book and kind of nerd the hell out on deck. Sometimes the fishermen get pissed at you because they're just like, what are you doing? And you're like, yeah, look at this one. Yeah. I, uh, one time I asked the captain if I could dissect or, yeah, I'll just use the term dissect a salmon shark that we got on that obviously passed away quite a while ago. It was a very long toast. The shark was very dead and I got to dissect it. And it was probably like one of the coolest experiences of my life. So back to this skills. Uh, did you do like a Jaws reveal? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Flies over the stomach. Oh, it's, it's a license plate. Ah. <laughs> the crew was very intrigued by it as well when they saw what I was doing. And I cleaned up my mess. I didn't make a mess for anybody else to clean up. I got disposed of the shark properly and all that. So it wasn't anything else. Polite of you. So here it says specific skills may vary by the job, but include species identification, bi biological specimen data collection, proper protected species handling, ability to tread water and or swim in an emergency suit and to write and board a life raft. So how, how was it the first time you put on your emergency suit? It's, it's kind of a weird suit to put on. You look, everybody looks really funny in them. Um, they don't really look too particularly comfortable and most people don't have experience with them until they get into a job like this. Um, I was kind of amazed at how hard the hands were to use. Like that was just, very uh mind-blowing for me because i was like oh, it's supposed to be safety equipment but i can't fucking use my hands at all um, and then as a as a woman with longer hair i was i was also kind of like you know needing to think more in my head like okay how am i gonna wear my hair on these boats because if i try to slip this on like really fast without having my hair up in a certain way like there's gonna be some bad news bears going on 
So, um, yeah, it was it was interesting putting on a Gumby suit for the first time. What about you? Um, so you know, I put on wetsuits before, and this was significantly easier than that, just because it it's larger. It's a much looser fit than a wetsuit. But like you said, using the hands. That's why I prefer. The Imperial suits, which have, like, the lobster claw, I find that a lot easier to use, a lot easier to get on um, than the individual fingers. One point during my training, they blew the whistle. We had to throw on our immersion suits. We were all out in separate groups kind of working up, and someone stole my immersion suit. So I tried to squeeze into one that was much too small for me, and that was the most uncomfortable thing I think I've ever done in my life. It was way too tight. I... Felt like I was wearing the world's tightest pair of skinny jeans, and I'm a robust man, so it was not comfortable. But <laughs> did you feel like a sausage? Uh, I don't know if sausage cases wouldn't bust at that point. So, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I did struggle a lot trying to get a good fitting suit, um, just because I'm short. And they are not made for all short of the suits. None of the Hell suits are no, made for short. Hell no, those legs are hella long. No, not even the size that I actually ended up going with is made for short people. That's It doesn't matter to me whether I have the fingers or the claws, because my hands can't fucking reach the hands anyway. Um, <laughs> so it's, you know, for me, I'm just like, alright, what, what fits better? What is your favorite fish to eat I... out of the fish that we, we get up there? Yellow eye is my favorite fish to eat. What about yours? Okay, why? Is a super fishy? No, or? it's I've not. It's, um, I mean, that's hard. Okay, if we're not counting halibut, then it's yellow eye. I love halibut. It's a good white steak fish. Um, but yellow eye is just—it's my favorite. My favorite secondary fish that we get up there. We don't get a lot of link cod. I really love link cod, but. Um, I love yellow eye. It they just I don't know. It's not super fishy. I'm not a super fishy kind of person. I don't really like that too much. Um it's a good in between like a steak that you get from a halibut and the typical smaller fillets flakiness that you get in rockfish. Um I don't know how to describe the flavor. I just really appreciate the flavor. Um it's something that you can put in a taco or you can throw some lemon and some butter and some garlic on there and just eat it like that. It's really good. What about you? Um, I gotta go with the idiot fish. Oh yeah. Uh, I had, yeah, like I had the soup. One of my, one of my boats. They had they got a bunch of idiot fish. Oh, for those of you that don't know, idiot fish are long spine or short spine thorny heads. Um, they have these really big, stupid, dumb faces. Um, AKA they're the idiot fish. But uh, one of my long liners, I had like a cold. And I wasn't really feeling well, and one of the the guys on there was like, you know what, I'm going to make you some idiot fish soup. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's weird. I don't really think, like, fish and soup go together, but sure. And, uh, yeah, he made the soup for me, and I was, like, hooked. I was like, holy shit, this is delicious. And it was some of the best soup I've ever had, and then I started having it in tacos and sandwiches, and just a little bit obsessed with it now, so. Anybody ever tell you you swear a lot? Um, I'm is that something you picked up yeah. in Alaska, or is that uh, is that something you had at home and brought up with you? No, I would love to say that the fisherman did this to me, but uh, I can't lie. I <laughs> I've always had kind of like a potty mouth, and I mean, 
fuck is my favorite word. It really is. Like, it's, you can say so many things with just one word. Like, fuck! Or fuck! <laughs> or fuck! Like, <laughs> you know, it just explains, like, so many things in one word, depending on how you say it. And Yeah, I've always thought that was uh, pretty great. But you, I don't think you've sworn this entire first episode. I definitely have, but I've been trying not to. Um... I definitely swear significantly more when I go up to Alaska, and when I come back, I have to really try to clean up my language, especially around children and that, because it, it's, it's something about the culture up there. I mean, it, fishermen swear a lot, so you feel like you have to swear a lot as well just to be heard. Um, people can say what they want about foul language, but sometimes, like you said, it just you get, it's to get a point across. And... Yeah, and it it is a real big struggle coming home because I mean, hell, when I'm not deployed, I substitute school teach, so <laughs> I try to dial that back way back when I substitute. It takes me about like a couple of weeks before I even think about going in the classroom to uh, dial it back, but uh, yeah, it's a struggle. What what are the different fisheries that we have up up in Alaska? Yeah, let's slap into fisheries. I mean, obviously, the big was big one. The big 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 one up there is. AFA Pollock. I mean, it's what yep. I think the largest biomass of fish caught up there is Pollock. Um, I'm actually... The bread and butter. It, it really is. And what, what, where, where did Pollock go? Do you know that? Do you, do you know where you, where you find your Pollock, where people eat Pollock? Um, dude, Pollock is one of those fish that's used in everything. Pollock's used in imitation crab, fish sticks, um, McDonald's fish fillets. Those are, those are Pollock. Um... Any generic ass fish thing is Pollock. <laughs> so, so those fish sticks I get at the store and that—that's mostly Pollock, or is it all Pollock? Yep. Um, it depends on the fish brand. Like I've seen fish brands or fish stick brands that are just Pollock, and then I've seen them where it's like Pollock and I think some haddock, um, and like a combination of like random fish, but it's mostly Pollock. Okay. Um, what else we got up there? What What are the other big fish they catch up there? Well, one of the fisheries that we don't cover is salmon. Um, it's a big fishery up there. Um, let's see what else we got. Rockfish. You got your. Well, you got your. Rockfish is like weird because there's like a bunch of different little fisheries inside of rockfish because you have like your pop, northerns, your duskies, um, your long spines. Like it just kind of depends on like type of uh the factory wants and then we got our black cod and our pacific cod our halibut got a it's like a random fishery for flatfish it's not very popular but it's up there too i uh, uh i'd like to say that i really do like yellowfin yellowfin sole it's uh it's a very good flatfish to me i don't know what it is i like about it but i a big fan of it i've never had arrowtooth or those weird ones that I think they make into kibble for carrots and things like that. They've got like one fillet of meat that you can actually use from the fish, which is why not a lot of boats target them. They don't really bring in the money. Isn't it mostly flatfish are used for like the cat kibble and the dog food and whatever? Isn't that normally what it is? I know that there's like Dover is used in um, like restaurants and stuff, but. All right, let's take a pause here. I am going okay. to do some research on this. Right now I've got this uh, one background sheet up, but I actually want to know a little bit more about the fisheries here. 
getting back into it, Lauren. Yeah, let's, so, let's talk about some fish pudding. Um, yeah, so I just found this article here that says the title is Alaska Flatfish Pudding, now at Walmart near you. The arrowtooth flounder is, a common, is the most gag. common food fish in the Gulf of Alaska. It looks something like a halibut. It does not look like a halibut. It is a flatfish that is as close to a halibut as an arrowtooth gets. And it tastes not like halibut. That is incredibly accurate. It says inedible is the first word that pops up after that. And I would <laughs> completely agree with that. A hard uh, yes. Yet is the fishery... Industrial Technology Center in Kodiak, a division of the University of Alaska Fairbanks School of Fisheries and Oceanic Sciences, spent years trying to figure out a way to make the flesh of the arrowtooth mimic the firm, flaky texture of the halibut. The center met with little success. Nonetheless, arrowtooth is now in a market near you. The Walmart Supercenter off of Diamond Boulevard in Anchorage. So in Anchorage, in its freezer case, it has arrowtooth available. Why? It's like it's kind of like eating like wet styrofoam. Nasty is how one reviewer put it, which is about sums up all the reviews. (laughs) Yeah, that that's like a lot of disappointed customers. I mean, they're just just reading through this article right here. (laughs) It's like wet paper fish. That's basically what that is. I mean, it it it's yeah. So that that's just one of the less desirable fish. I mean, we have with Pollock, which. Let's see, what does it say for Pollock landings last year? Oh, you know what other fishery that is up there, but we don't actually observe? What? Crab. Like, we have a shitload of crab up there. I mean, how yeah. is the, there's a freaking show on the Discovery Channel on it. Well, there are crab so observers. That, there are observers, but not like not like us observers. Those guys work for a fish and game. That is true. It is a different program. I was listening to the AP meeting for the management council yesterday, and they're actually talking about putting more vessels or more observers on smaller pot vessels, pretty much all pot vessels, because of the high number of bycatch they are getting for red king crab and some other type of crab, which I can't remember specifically. I think they said last year they had an estimated bycatch of 213,000 crab, and crab have about a 50% mortality rate when handled by non-crabbing vessels. So that's half of those crabs were just dead when they chucked off the boat. Um, and right now well, they're actually, they've closed the Bristol Bay red crab fishery for this next damn. year, which is huge because that's a lot of money for a lot of people. Um, and they're yeah. worried about a crab collapse in other sectors as well. Did the, did the Pacific cod in the Gulf ever bounce back? Uh, I know we had that closed for a little bit. Yes, I know... Um, did it limited entry right now? A, though? Yes, they did a little bit last year. It was very brief, and they're probably. I didn't hear too much about the Gulf. I know in Alaska they're talking about turning it into a catch shares. Um, so each boat will get a specific amount, or each plant will get a specific amount of fish allocated to them for that year or that season. And they have the whole season to catch it instead of the open access, which had typically been, which is a derby derby fishery. I really like cod. Yeah. They cook it way too much up there. I can't eat it when I'm up in Alaska because every boat wants to cook cod every other day. And it's good. Don't get me wrong. It's a nice white flaky fish, but it's nothing special. 
can't remember if it's Pacific Cod or Black Cod that's, like, super oily. Is that Black that's Cod? That's Black Cod, yeah. Okay, I can't fucking stand Black Cod. Yeah, um, it's got a very unique, strong flavor. I hear a lot of people say it's, they like it, you just have to cook it right. Um, everybody says that about everything, so I've never tried it. And I don't have any plans to try it anytime soon because I'm not a huge oily fish kind of guy. So, for Pollock Catch, last year... They caught 703,325 metric tons of pollock across Jesus. all AFA sectors and CDQ, um, which is crazy, for bee season pollock. That's bee season. That's just bee season? That's what it says here, bee season pollock for all AFA sectors and CDQ. Now, That's ridiculous. We were talking about this, uh, no one else will hear that, but the annual Chinook catch, so the total number of Chinook caught in 2021 was 12,227 Chinook. 1,177 were in CDQ, so non-Pollock fisheries, and 11,050 were caught in Pollock fisheries alone. Um, That's for the whole year. Chinook are huge on the Pacific Northwest. They're huge in Alaska. They're great fish to eat. People love to catch them. People love to eat them. There's a commercial fishery for them. Um, it's very closely monitored, and it's a very tight knit program when it comes to dealing with salmon. Do you have Have you eaten salmon? Do you like salmon? Oh, I love salmon. Have you had that uh that smoked salmon cream cheese they have at the Harbor View Inn in Kodiak? Oh my god, yeah. Like I, I love So that. I can't I can't eat gluten, but I will take a gluten pill for one of those things. <laughs> <laughs> so then as far as non Chinook salmon, so we got our chum, pinks, our sockeye, our coho, and I think that's it, right? I assume there's not a whole lot of steelhead being caught. Technically they're not as salmon or they're not salmon a day. Um but for 2021, there was a total of 526,431 salmon caught that were not Chinook. That is an insane number. 470,754 all... were caught in Pollock. 55,677 mm-hmm. were non-Pollock. Um, I imagine and, the and most of that discard. is chum. Yeah, that's all discard. I mean, that's, yeah. Because Chinook, ridiculous. most people don't know, uh, a lot of the plants or vessels uh Donate those to food banks. The non-Chinook salmon typically don't. Some coho do, um, but most salmon are caught or chum, and most of those are just tossed back into the ocean, um, which is here nor there. Um, I don't have any strong opinions on that currently for this podcast, but we may talk about that later. Yeah, I haven't done enough research on how that affects where they're dumped or not to even have an opinion on that yet but so i just will say that's like an insane amount of discard in uh, 2021 the total total allowable catch of pacific cod in the bering sea was 111,380 metric tons and 13,700 so 14,000 metric tons in the aleutian islands it didn't actually say anything about the gulf so i don't know if there's actually a fishery in the gulf for pacific cod What's the most salmon that you've observed at a factory? Like, 
or on on a boat i was wasn't i wasn't at the factory i was on a boat delivering to a factory and another boat was offloading and they had so many salmon that i had to go and monitor or help count salmon for a vessel offload that wasn't even mine it we ended up with a total of just under 13,000 salmon i know they broke that record last year um, this last bee season. Salmon apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, that is a lot of salmon. They actually started making rules or rule changes after that happened. Um, it was just an insane amount of salmon, but that was almost all chum, if not all chum. And people just don't care about chum salmon up there, apparently. So, I mean, I will say they're not, when it comes like tastiness, they're not like the tasty, tastiest salmon. Like they're like a Super light color, like their meat is. They're not like, I don't know, to me, they're just not as tasty as some of the other species. Yeah. Uh, so we talked about black cod, rockfish, definitely good. Um, I don't know if I can really taste the difference between, you know, your duskies or your northerns or any of those rockfish. Um, definitely feel the texture difference between yellow eye and most other rockfish species, but. That's because they're thick. Yeah, they they thick. Um, but I don't really know too much about the other fisheries up there. Uh, I know there's some odd dungy fisheries, obviously, that falls under the crab category. Um, some of the flat flatfish fish ones. is a weird one up there, yeah. Uh, Acca mackerel. Actually, I don't know too much about that one. No, I've never done that one. If somebody wants to chime in and give us a little hint and commentary on mackerel or some of these other fisheries that we don't know too much about, that would be much appreciated. Yes, you can send us a message on the Observer Station podcast Instagram um, and let us know your experience with mackerel or any other um, experiences you've had on a boat or topics that you've touched, that we've touched on. If you want to chime in and kind of give us some feedback, that'd be cool. We're all open. Uh, all ears, that is. Yeah, we're definitely all ears. So I feel like that was a pretty good pretty good summary of what it's like to be an observer, what the fisheries are like up here, who we are, what we've been doing, what we're going to do. Um, I'm definitely getting ready for a season up in Alaska. What yeah. is your favorite pet? I know you have a bunch of them, but you got to have a favorite. <laughs> you have a favorite pet. My favorite pet... Um... Oh, I'm sorry, Renly, but it has to be my cat Cheez Its. Oh yeah, why is why is uh, Cheez Its your favorite? Uh, Cheez is my favorite because he walks on a leash, he plays fetch, and he can bark at you. Um, and he's a cat, <laughs> and uh, he's my favorite just because he's an oddball. Like he's just really odd. What about you, I know you have a zoo over there. Um, yes, right now my favorite pets are the eight goslings that we have running around the house. Um, we uh, just had I know I saw one that. of our goose hatch out her eggs. Finally, she did pretty good. Uh, eight out of 11 hatch. Two of them were almost hatched, but didn't make it for some reason. And one egg was a dud. That's a really good hatch rate. Um, now they've got three parents. They're all running around in the yard with, they are adorable. They're very s- spontaneous and they're running around and chirping and squawking and acting tough and then running away. Um, they're adorable. 
and they're my favorite pets right now for, solely because how adorable they are. I cannot wait to see them and meet them and pet Freddy. Yeah. Freddy's hopefully will Freddy have miss some, me? Yeah, he definitely does. <laughs> Freddy is my turkey, for those that don't know. All our turkeys have serial killer or horror movie names. Uh, we got Freddy, Annabelle, and I can't remember the other one ever. Carrie, that's what it is. Yeah, Freddy's my favorite. So, thank you for listening to our podcast. This was The Observer Station with the W's, Walter, and... Taylor! Reminding you that safety is your number one priority. Yes, and if you're thinking about being Observer, it's a cool gig. Uh, Stay tuned, and we'll catch you next time.